It is a great joy to sing with you on Sunday mornings and be so uh, well led by our worship teams. We're grateful for all the volunteers that we have uh, who serve in uh, this capacity. I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn with me, please, if you would, to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. Uh, as we usually do, I'm going to begin by reading this passage of Scripture, the first five verses of this chapter. We as a congregation are committed to systematically studying through books of the, uh, the Bible. And uh, we come to chapter 5. Now, when John wrote chapter 5 of this letter, it wasn't chapter 5. The chapters and verse numbers were added later. Uh, But it sure does make it easier for us to get together in chapter 5 by being able to say chapter 5. So 1 John 5 is where we're going to uh, read this morning. 1 John 5, 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. I was driving in our car this week, and Jenna and Luke were with me, and I said to them, I'm not sure what I'm going to do about my sermon this week. And Jenna said, is it too long? Uh, In her defense, that's what we talk about a lot. I said, not yet. I haven't written it yet, but I'm sure it will be. And then uh, she said, my, I said, my problem is that the passage is so dense, I'm not sure what to do with it. I said, do you know what it's about? It's from 1 John. Huh. Do you know what any paragraph is in 1 John about? She said she was right. Love, love, love. Uh, then, I, then I gave her the chance to uh, guess what else might be in this passage, and we remember the two other things that John talks about all the time, our common confession as Christians that Jesus is God's Son, and the necessity of those who make that confession of obeying what God has commanded us to do. And all three of these things, <clears throat> uh, truth, love, and obedience, are at the center of this paragraph, just like they're at the center of the whole book. But John here, we're at chapter 5 of five chapters. John's in the red zone of this letter. And uh, he devoted this paragraph to putting those three things together, truth, love, and obedience. We've been in 1 John for almost five months, and uh, John wrote this book, you remember, to a group of Christians, uh, members of churches in the city of Ephesus and the the towns around that, uh, to help them know that they're genuine followers of Jesus. It is possible to be deceived about whether or not you're a Christian. It's possible to think you're a Christian and not really be a Christian. It's possible to believe things or deny things that make it impossible for you to be a follower of Jesus. One of the problems that these readers had is that there was a splinter group that had broken off from the churches of uh, 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 of these men and women, and those splinter groups, they were claiming to have the truth, to to understand really what it means to follow Jesus, and it provoked some doubts. There doesn't have to be a splinter group in your life in order for you to have doubts. John wrote this, though, to shore up their confidence. 
And he gave him these tests. We've talked about the tests. The truth test, the love test, the obedience test. And he returns to these tests over and over again. And they're all here in this paragraph. I wonder if, if you noted that. John Stott did. He said that if you look, the words believe and faith are in verses 1, 4, and 5. The word love is in verses 1, 2, and 3. And the word obey or command is in verses 2 and 3. Truth, love, obedience, they all go together. And John is at great pains. He wants you to understand how they mix together. Nor, apparently, is John afraid of a little repetition. <laughs> I was thinking about this week, and, uh, and, and you know, repetition is often a hallmark of good leadership. Think about the coach that you've had or the choir director. What does she say, what does he say right before you take the court or right before you take the stage for a performance? Don't they always say the same thing? The choir director says to you, remember, look at me and smile. He he said it a million times, but he says it one more time before you get up on the platform. I've been on a soccer field as a player, and now usually I sit on the sidelines as a fan, and I hear the same things over and over and over again. Take the ball to the outside. Don't cross the ball in front of the goal. Or give him a pass. Or uh, if it's a throw-in, keep your foot down. Keep your foot down. Don't coaches say the same things over and over again? Uh, I have decided, I don't have statistics to prove this, but I'm fairly certain that 70% of my parenting is repetition. Shut the door, right? Did you brush your teeth? All of them? Uh, Turn off the lights. Put your shoes on, not your head, your feet. Put your shoes on your feet. I don't have to say that much more. That doesn't, I don't have to do that that much. Do you have any homework? Right? Um, Kathy sometimes talks to us about her pastor in the church she, was, uh, she grew up in. His name was James Andrews. He was a fine man. He was a great preacher, a good evangelist, and a, a fine leader. He had phrases that he repeated over and over again to his congregation. Um, at his funeral, actually, somebody stood up and read them all. They, they called them pastorisms. And one of the things he used to say to his church all the time at the end of the service is, until we meet again, may God hold you in the palm of his hand. And he wasn't being sentimental, he wasn't being cheesy, he really meant it, he loved the people that were part of his church, and and he told them these things over and over again. John's not afraid to repeat himself. This prompted me to think about what I say over and over again in my life as a parent or as a pastor. I don't think, I don't think at my funeral, my children will say, one of the things dad always said to us was, did you brush your teeth? Right? But... I'm not looking for a tagline, I'm not looking for a motto, but are there are truths that I want you to remember more than anything else that I say over and over and over again? And for John, it's love. Love one another, love one another. I wonder if your parenting or your grandparenting or your Sunday school teaching or your small group leadership would be improved by a little bit more repetition. What I want to note specifically in this chapter, this paragraph that we just read, is I want to spend some time thinking with you here about what's uh, new in this paragraph. Not not completely new, but a new emphasis. I wonder if you notice that. Look at uh, how he describes followers of Jesus again in verse 4. He says, everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? 
Uh, four times John uses the same root word, translated overcome and victory. It's the Greek word that Phil Knight used uh, to name his little shoe company. Uh, we pronounce it Nike. They probably pronounced it Nike in the Greek. Overcoming. Is this how you feel as a follower of Jesus? Like a victor in following him? Like every day you follow Jesus and it's just like crossing the finish line. The tape goes down because you're the victor. Woohoo! Is that how you feel as a follower of Jesus? This reminds me of a novel that I, I read several years ago. They made it into a movie. It was by Orson Scott Card called Ender's Game. So in Ender's Game, um, uh, the world is at war. Uh, aliens have invaded the world. They did terrible damage, and then they left, but they're coming back, and everybody knows they're coming back. So the world is getting ready for the alien invaders, uh, and uh, this long war, they want to take the war to space, to the aliens. And, and the, since the war has, uh, has gone on for a long time, the military has started recruiting teenagers to train them for battle, and top candidates are brought from the planet up to a space station where they undergo this rigorous training process. And Ender, this young man, is one of the best. And during uh, game simulations, during the training, the battle simulations, Ender is given top command. And, and the training progresses and the sessions get more and more um, uh, difficult and the, the sessions get closer and closer together. And, and the last training session they have before they're ready to go is this massive battle simulation and, and at the end of it, when Ender returns victorious, they tell him, they tell him, here's a spoiler if you haven't read the book, sorry. They tell him that he actually hasn't been going through simulations, he's actually been fighting the real battles. He hasn't been controlling electronic ships, he's been controlling real ships on the battlefield, and they won, they won, they're victorious. And Ender is stunned, Really? How can that possibly be? We're here for training. No, no, you're not in training. You won. You won the battle. Everyone born of God overcomes the world. Hmm. Added to that is this little puzzle, this puzzling phrase that John uses at the end of verse 3. He says, God's commands are not burdensome. Sometimes they feel like it, though, don't they? Have you ever been on a lazy river in a water park? I'm getting old enough where I like the lazy river now. So, um, you know, the lazy river, you get into it and, and you get a tube and you lay in the tube and, and it's this, this river that winds its way through a water park and, and there's a current and it moves along. Um, it used to be that my favorite thing to do in the lazy river was actually to swim against the current, to move against the current. You had to do two things. You had to both dodge the lazy riverers who were coming against you, and you had to dodge the disapproving glare of the lifeguard. But you could push against the current, right? Um, sometimes following God's commands feels like that. More burdensome than burdenless. So how, how do we put this together? His commands are not burdensome. Here's what I want to do. Here's how I want to walk my way through this passage. We're going to pick up this theme of victory or overcoming that's in this passage. And I want to show you in the passage two ways in which followers of Jesus overcome. Both of them are in this paragraph. Both of them are related to love, truth, and obedience. 
So let's talk about those. Here's the first way that followers of Jesus overcome. First, we overcome by our faith in Jesus. We overcome by our faith in Jesus. We overcome by the confession of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how the passage begins and ends. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, verse 5, only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Our confession of Jesus, our faith in him, is itself a countercultural act. It is a swimming upstream act. It's a subversive victory in the world. Or to put this another way, uh, this world, this system of values and attitudes that is opposed to God in which we live, is not inclined to submit to the lordship of Jesus. And the fact that you confess him is a victory. It's an overcoming. Now, we should talk about this confession for a little bit. It's strange. He says, verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. At first glance, you might be inclined to think, that seems pretty minimal, right? It doesn't say anything in verse 1 about, about sin or about the cross. It seems like he should be saying more here than the fact that just Jesus is the Messiah. In fact, actually there is. John is using verbal shorthand here because this verse is not the only verse that John wrote. Uh, Colin Cruz wrote a book about 1 John and he said that in reading chapter 5, we should take everything that John says about Jesus and put it here. What does he say? Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He's God's son. He's the one who came in the flesh. His death was both real and necessary. He's the savior of the world. He's the one who's our sacrifice. He's the one who paid the penalty we owe because of our sin. Now, that's what John means when it says we believe that Jesus is the Messiah. It's theological shorthand. The Bible does it all the time. The Bible, it will, it will allude to a passage in the Old Testament or quote just a little bit of a verse. It's actually referring to the whole passage, but there's just a line. Uh, I, like to listen, I like to watch uh, PBS British mystery shows. Um, and one of my favorites is set in the 1950s or 1960s, and, and uh, I have a hard time. Sometimes their British accents throw me, and then they throw out these little phrases, these aphorisms. Like, they'll stand there, and they'll say, a bird in the, uh, bird in the hand, what? And you're like, what? A bird in the hand, what? What they mean is, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. But all they say is, a bird in the hand. Ah, okay. A stitch in time, huh? Think about this. What do they actually mean? A stitch in time saves nine. That's what they're talking about. John says, Jesus is the Messiah. And we say, oh yeah, we know what that means. He's the son of God. He came in the flesh. His death was both real and necessary. He's the, he's the savior of the world. It's biblical shorthand. It has, to be, it has to be more than just this mere belief, though we know that. Because in the second half of verse 1, he compares that belief to love. As if the two goes together, if the two go together. If you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, it implies that you love the Father. That's what belief in Him is. It includes, it incorporates love for the Father. To believe in Him is to love Him. Do you remember that song that Phil Spector wrote in 1958? He wrote it based on what was carved on his father's tombstone. To know, know, know Him is to love, love, love Him, right? To believe in Jesus is to love the Father. They, they, they go together. 
John puts a lot of weight in these, two, these few verbs, verbs, right? These few words. Jesus is the Messiah. And this is not a confession in which the world delights. There's no encouragement in the world to believe in him, to embrace him. Followers of Jesus have been pushing back against this for centuries. We believe that Jesus is God's son who has come in the flesh, and we have been talking about this for 2,000 years. How about a little church history? Do you mind a little church history this morning? So the great task of the church after the age of the apostles was to clarify and uh, enunciate the teachings of the the apostles. They did not change the teaching of the apostles. They clarified it in the face of the opposition. opposition. In fact, that's what theologians do. Good theologians, they take uh, the truth that we believe and they enunciate it, they clarify it to meet the challenges of the day in which they live. Uh, Imagine that you, you're, you're sitting at work and you see a coworker going to the stock room and, and you say to him, hey, while you're in there, would you get me some tape? And he returns with masking tape and you actually wanted scotch tape. So then, then you have to clarify, all along I knew I wanted scotch tape, but I didn't say that, I just said tape. So now that you brought me the wrong thing, I have to clarify what I, what I meant. That's what theology is. He's clarifying what the apostles taught. One of my favorite illustrations of this has to do with the Bible. It used to be sufficient for followers of Jesus to say, we believe in the inspiration of the Bible. Inspiration is a good word. It's a biblical word. It means that the Bible is from God. It is the divine origin of the Bible, the God-originedness of the Bible. We believe in the inspiration of the Bible. Uh, But then we've had to be more specific because some people came along and they said, well, you don't mean like the whole thing, right? Not the whole thing. Oh, yes, yes, we do. We believe in the plenary inspiration of the Bible. But but you don't mean like the actual words, like the nitty-gritty words. Oh, yes, yes, we do. We believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of the Bible. But you don't mean that the Bible's like really trustworthy like that, do you? Oh, yes, we do. We believe in the infallible verbal plenary inspiration of the Bible. But you don't believe that the Bible is perfect without mistakes. Oh, yes, we do. In fact, we believe in the inerrant infallible verbal plenary inspiration of the Bible. See how this goes? Uh, We have to clarify getting more and more precise. Now, during the first 300 years of the church, uh, the earliest theologians devoted themselves to describing in precision the nature of the Lord Jesus Christ. What does it mean that he is God's son? In AD 319, there was a church leader. His name was Arius. He was born in Libya in 256. Uh, He spent most of his time in Alexandria. And he argued, he came along and he said that since the Bible says that Jesus is the son, then he must have had a beginning because all sons have a beginning. Jesus must be created. He famously said, there once was a time when the son was not. Sounds like Yoda, right? That's the theology for Yoda. There once was a time when the son was not. Now, there was a man who was 40 years younger than Arius, whose name was Athanasius. Uh, He's the hero of the story, so I'm going to show you his picture right now. Oh, yes. Okay, there he is, Athanasia, taken with a Polaroid picture. (laughs) Does this picture make my forehead look big? Yes, it does. So there he is, Athanasius. Now, Athanasius was born in Egypt in 298. He also lived in Alexandria. He opposed Arius, and he said, no, the apostles taught us Jesus Christ is God's son. He's equally divine. He's truly divine, just like the Father. Athanasius won the first round of this battle that they had. 
Uh, his views were cemented in the Nicene Creed. Uh, let me read to you. I printed it out, but let me read to you what it says about Jesus. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not created, of one being with the Father. Whew. That's the equivalent there of I believe in inerrant, infallible, verbal, plenary inspiration of the Bible. Right? Long. Athanasius spent the next 40 years of his life defending this statement. Politics changed, the Roman emperor was in flux, and, and sometimes Athanasius and his view was on the outs. He was exiled five times. He spent 17 years of his 45 years when he was bishop, banished from the empire. But while he was banished, he wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote. At one point in time, somebody said to him, Athanasius, the whole world is against you. And Athanasius said, then it will be Athanasius against the world. And he got a nickname from that. His, name was, his nickname was Athanasius Contramundum, which is uh, Athanasius against the world. He was a great man. You can still benefit and read for his writings. They're all online for free. If you want to name your baby Athanasius, that would be a great choice. A great choice. He fought this battle against the whole world uh, to describe this truth. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And when you believe that too, you know what happens to you? You become contramundum. Joel Divinity, contramundum. Because I believe that Jesus Christ is God's Son. It's victory. It's victory to confess that. Now, what's helpful about this passage also is that it, it reminds us where John puts his emphasis. His emphasis for our victory is the person and work of Jesus. This is where Christianity rises or falls. It's easy to be drawn into different debates with people who have doubts and questions about the Bible. It's easy to be drawn into those debates, arguments about how many days of creation or whether Jonah could really survive in the whale or, or uh, discussions about the relationship between the sovereignty of God and human free will. It's good to have grasp on all of those issues, but remember, the spearhead of our overcoming is our confession in Jesus and his resurrection. This passage also reminds me, I think, when we think about this confession being overcoming, it reminds us that your faith in the Lord Jesus is a miracle. It's unexpected, it's unusual, it's not ordinary, it's dependent on the intervention of God himself. Some of you know that. Some of you, you accept that with no question. You say, of course it's a miracle that I believe in Jesus because Jesus found me when I just come off a bender. Or Jesus found me in prison. Or Jesus found me after 10 years of my spouse praying for me and going to church and talking to me about Jesus. And I, for 10 years, I said, no, 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 no. And then I finally turned and, and trusted in him. You know exactly where your life was headed. And, 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 and what it was like. But Jesus found you and he brought you to himself. So when I say that it is overcoming, it is victory, that you believe that Jesus is the Christ, you say, yes, absolutely, absolutely. That might not be as apparent to some of you, uh, the rest of you, maybe some of you like me. I can't remember a time that I didn't know the facts of the gospel. Uh, and, and when I believed I was very young, there wasn't dramatic change in my life. I didn't quit a tricycle gang at my preschool. Um, I, I didn't have to have my Sesame Street tattoos removed. Like, there was no... And yet, and yet, 
my conversion was a miracle nonetheless. You may not have gone as far in your rebellion against God, but your heart was already against him and your body was going to catch up. We were all, as Paul wrote, dead in trespasses and sins. And if you would have life, you have to experience the miracle of the new birth. If you notice that John mentioned that new birth or being born of God, he mentions it twice. In verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And then he mentions it again. I can't find it real fast, but it's here. Verse 4, everyone born of God overcomes the world. Again, Colin Cruz, he helps us here. He says, being born of God... As a decisive work of God, whereby he gives you new life and he places you into his family. It's initiated by God, executed by the Holy Spirit, and takes place in conjunction with faith in Christ. Faith, in this passage, faith is the evidence that you have been born of God. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Your faith today, your consistent confession that Jesus is God's son is evidence of the fact that you have been born again. Now, in John 1, the gospel of John in verse 12, he talks about faith as the cause of our new birth. Look at John 1, 12. He says, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Faith is the cause, yet it's God's work. That's what verse 13 of John 1 says. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or husband's will, but born of God. Born of God. Children born of God, not because you were raised in a Christian home or because you're a good church kid or because you had perfect Sunday school attendance or you had never went to prison, although those are all wonderful things, but, but children born of God. It's a wonder. It is a wonder. It is a miracle that you believe. Your faith today is a sign of God's work. It is a sign of overcoming, a victory to be celebrated. Now, there's a second form of overcoming in this passage. This is not, the second form is not about our confession, but about our conduct. So here it is. We overcome by following Jesus. We overcome by following Jesus. And our overcoming is evident through love, through obedience to God's command, specifically uh, the command to love. So the world doesn't encourage us to confess that Jesus is Lord. It doesn't encourage us to submit to the lordship of Jesus either. It doesn't encourage us to to obey him chiefly by loving one another. That's the emphasis in in verses 2 and 3. Now think with with me about this for a minute. Do you know why John reminds us over and over again to love one another? Why does John have to say this over and over and over again? The same reason you have to tell your children to turn the lights off over and over and over again. Because it's not natural. It's not our natural instinct. We're born into this world, we're shaped by this world, and loving one another has to be cultivated, has to be pursued, it has to be practiced, it has to be fought for. It's work to love our fellow believers. And that's not the way the world teaches us to love. In fact, the world teaches us to love uh, similar to your devotion to your toothpaste. Do you have a brand of toothpaste you prefer? Um, we grew up in a uh, Crest home, Crest family. Now, I don't care. I use whatever is in the drawer when I open it to brush my teeth. It's, it's a miraculous 
how it just appears there all the time. And I open the drawer and I take it out and brush. I should learn to look carefully. It's going to be preparation H someday and I'm going to use that. But in this, you open it and it's this tube and it magically appears in the drawer and I don't care what it is, I use it. It's wonderful. But, now, now I, so I don't have a brand preference. If I did though, I would not be very loyal. Um, my loyalty would only last as long as I continued to like the toothpaste, as long as it made me happy. If they change the mint, if they make it more spearmint than peppermint, I am gone. Or if it doesn't foam the way I like. Or if they raise a price just a little bit. Or, or if some other brand convinces me that it is marginally better, I'm in. I, I don't work hard at all to love my toothpaste, and I will drop my toothpaste at, at, at almost any cause. That's sometimes the way that we're taught to love the church and the people in it too, right? If they stop singing my favorite songs or if they change the service time or if someone is mean to me or if I disagree about some decisions, I'm gone. Huh. Brothers and sisters, I have good news. There are a lot of people in our church whose loyalty extends very far. That's what John is writing about. You can, you can recognize that they're, they're the people who have been around here a long time. There's a lot of them. And, and they know that this command is not easy. They, they stuck around through some times when it was hard to do what John is commanding here. It, it might surprise you, believe it or not, Grace Baptist Church of Millersville and the people in it and the pastors who serve are not as lovable as our angelic demeanors might suggest. We're not always lovable. John writes over and over again, love one another, love one another, love one another. Now, I say it takes work, I say it takes effort. We need to be reminded and prompted about this. At the same time, John says that his commands are not burdensome. Now, how can that be? How, how can that be? Well, let's talk about the word burden itself first. So the word burden refers to something that's heavy or oppressive or crushing. Uh, Jesus used it to describe the Pharisees and the effect of their commands, their man-made commands. Matthew 23, 2 and 4 says, Jesus says, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. That's some good writing right there. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. These burdens, the, the commands of the Pharisees are burdensome, that they're meaningless laws. They don't actually have any effect to change your heart. And in contrast to that, Jesus said, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, John says that the commands are not burdensome. Why are they not burdensome? Because they flow out of your new relationship with God. So follow this logic about love here. Believing in him is a sign that you are born of God. And if you're born of God, you love God. And if you love God, you love his children, which is what he wants you to do. That's the logic that John is following here. John's making a comparison in this passage between your natural family and, and God's family. There is in a natural family an affinity, a love. It just happens. Now, I say that. I know that some of you have broken relationships with your siblings. It's terrible. It's grievous, isn't it? 
The reason it's grievous is because families are meant to be places, they're not perfect places, not at all. But families are meant to be places of love. I have another picture to show you. Oh, there we go, good. Did you see this picture? So this picture this week was, uh, I saw it online in the news, it's by a photographer named David Lloyd. And he, David Lloyd, for this picture, just won the Wildlife Photographer of the Year People's Choice Award from the National History Museum of New Zealand, which is so long the plaque is huge. So it's a, a picture from uh, a museum in New Zealand. Thank you, Jessica Brubaker. So now, it's a picture, this is a picture of two male lions greeting each other. That's what they're doing, rubbing foreheads. Um, it's believed these, these lions are brothers, and this is how they greeted one another after they had been parted for a while. Lions get it. I wonder if you get it. Uh, you love your family. Even a lion knows you love your family. Do you get that too? Do you get it too? Note that, that for John, this sort of love is rooted in the Father. We love one another for the Father's sake because of him. Not because we're so lovable, but because he is. I love you for his sake. And his, my love for him turns every command that he would make into joy, not burden. Uh, Drew Dyke wrote a, about a TV commercial that he saw. It, was, it featured a, a young man, and he was in the... Uh, he was agonizing over a decision. Uh, he, his parents, he was living in America, but his parents in his native country had arranged a marriage for him, and she was on her way to the United States. He, this is going to be the first time he's going to meet this young lady, and, and he's going to, to have to marry her according to the customs of his home country. He's anxious about this, though, because he's thinking, I live in the United States. That's not the way they, they do marriage in the United States. Uh, he's not sure he wants to go through with it. But he's a dutiful son, so when uh, she flew into the airport, he showed up at the airport, and he had flowers, and he was standing there. You can see flowers and this glum expression. Oh, no, here, here it comes. But then, then, walking through the door, comes this vision of loveliness. And, and his frown turned upside down. Because, look, this girl that I get to marry, the thought of marrying her was no longer dread. It was no longer duty. It was delight. What had changed? He saw her. He saw her, and it changed his whole perspective. Shallow. <laughs> Listen to what Drew Dyke writes, though, he, about this. Often we serve God out of obligation. Isn't that true? We drag ourselves to church. We force ourselves to serve others, but our hearts aren't in it. We're like the guy at the airport grudgingly holding flowers for God. We're trying to live holy lives because we know we should, but it's burdensome, it's joyless. What can change this, he says? Seeing God. When we get a vision of who God truly is, suddenly we're energized to do his mission. Once we gaze upon his grandeur and glory, obedience ceases to be arduous. Once we grasp his great love, serving is no longer a duty, it's a joy. That's what happens to those who are born of God. It's his love for us that changes us. We realize that whatever he asks us, you have loved me so much by sending your son to die for me. Whatever you ask of me, it's not a burden. It's, it's joy. It's freedom. There I was floating down the lazy river of my own sin. 
and I had no idea about the consequences of the terrible choices that I was making. Just going with the flow, not thinking about the consequences, not thinking about the direction. The world itself is floating down the lazy river towards God's righteous wrath. But his commands, God's commands, first to believe in his son and his death for us on the cross, and now the commands to love and obey one another are freedom. They're not burdens, they're freedom. It is as if God found me in the trash heap and said to me, hey, stop eating garbage. Oh, but I really like how it tastes. Stop eating garbage. It's not a burden to stop eating garbage. Stop spending yourself into bankruptcy. But I love stuff. Stuff makes me happy. Stuff fills my life. Stuff gives me security. But it's destroying you, all this stuff. It's not a burden to be freed from stuff you don't need. Stop wrecking your relationships. But revenge, it feels so satisfying. But it isolates you. It isolates you. His commands are not burdensome, they're freedom. They don't always sound like it, but, but God is trying to rescue us from the foolish things that we do, that we surround ourselves with. He's, he's rescuing us with these commands. He, he says, love one another, be kind to one another, be, be tenderhearted. We pursue these things because being born of God awakens you to their wonder, to their wisdom, to the overcoming that John is describing here. Do you see that? If you do, it's a sign that you're born of God. I confess, I have not read the novels. I have not read The Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien. I'm listening to them now on an audiobook. It's like 108 hours. These, I listen to them when I drive around my car. I could drive to California and back and not be finished. I don't think I'd be able to, I haven't read the books. I don't think I'd be able to read the books. I barely made it through all of the movies. So there's a scene at the end of the films. I'm not sure if it's in the books. I haven't got there yet. But there's a scene at the end of the film, and, and, and Frodo Baggins and his friend are, are returning to the Shire. Uh, they've been away for 12 months, and the Shire is the place where the hobbits live, and the Shire is a land of peace and simplicity and, and happiness. The Shire is just like Eden. And the rest of the hobbits who live in the Shire, they have no idea what the about the danger that had been facing them, the threat that had been in the world. But Frodo and his friends had left the Shire to go face that terrible threat. They endured, these guys, they endured cold and hunger and thirst and war. They walked endless miles. They fought these battles. They're victors, but no one else in the Shire knows that, and no one else in the Shire apparently cares. Frodo and his friends walk in or ride their horses in, and everyone looks at them suspiciously. Where have you been? What have you been doing? Probably causing a mess. It's the only reason people leave the Shire is to go cause a mess. What nonsense have you gotten yourselves into? Everybody watching the movie or reading the book at that point in time knows these are the victors. They won. You should be thanking them or congratulating them or celebrating with them because they won. They, the reason they're returning, the reason it's so peaceful and happy here is because what they did. I think that's what following Jesus is often like in this world. There's snide looks, backhanded comments. What do you think you're doing? Who are you following? What have you been up to? 
But what we see is victory. We see overcoming. That's what happens when you believe in Jesus. Let's pray, shall we? Oh, Father, we come before you this morning and we confess to you there are times when we feel that following you is not victorious and not overcoming and not burdenless. Um, we, we feel, um, some, sometimes we feel the burden of your commands. Uh, Father, I pray that you would, in part through this passage and by your Holy Spirit, remind us of your great love for us and, and by reminding us, uh, so transform us that, that we see your commands are freedom. The command to love one another is joy. It's delight, not duty. Opportunity, not obligation. Father, we recognize that the Lord Jesus has made it possible for us for this to be true in our lives. He who is our Savior, the one who reconciles us to you. Being born of God, we are free to love you and to follow you. Father, I pray that you would infuse in our congregation the joy of love, the joy of love that would multiply and, and serve in our congregation to, to fill us with delight in the Father and the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. Your word tells us that it's by our love for one another that people will know that we're followers of Jesus. Magnify our testimony, we pray, as we obey this command to love one another. We ask these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, amen.